Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Carlos Berdejo, professor of law at Loyola Law School. We'll be discussing his article, Financing Minority Entrepreneurship, which is forthcoming in the Wisconsin Law Review. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Carlos, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Carlos, as you note in the paper, there are significant racial disparities in this country when it comes to entrepreneurship. Could you give us a sense of the nature and the scale of that problem? I think there's a couple of ways of looking at it. We can look at business ownership and see like what rate of business ownership you have in different groups. And there, for example, minorities, there are about 38% of the whole population they own only 19% of the businesses. So there's sort of that gap there in ownership and self-employment. And also we look at, you know, business that actually start. Minority-owned businesses tend to be smaller. They tend to have lower levels of revenues and profits, but 50% than non-minority businesses. And they also have higher failure rates. So they're more likely to fail. So there's a couple of ways of looking at the at this problem. It's sort of important to note that when I refer to minority-owned businesses, we have to see which type of groups are more affected, and it tends to be African Americans and Hispanic entrepreneurs that tend to have the most difficulties. What do we already know about the origins or some of the potential origins of these racial disparities in entrepreneurship? So there's many, many factors, and I think they're all a little bit interconnected. Some people have focused on socioeconomic factors. So you have differences in human capital, for example, education and business experience, minorities, they have lower levels of education and they have less exposure not to business, either via friends or families, that can make it more difficult not to start a business. Differences in wealth, no economic differences. When you start a business, often use your own money or money from friends or family to the extent that minority entrepreneurs don't have access no, to that type of readily available capital that can make it a little bit more difficult for them to get going. Also, like non-liquid assets like real estate, there's big disparities no, in like homeownership. And those assets, you would not sell the house to start up a business. You could borrow no, against your equity in your house. And those disparities sort of translate to uh, business ownership disparities down the line. Folks have also looked at business characteristics, the type of businesses that minorities and non-minorities tend to operate. And minority businesses tend to be smaller 
in terms of size, if you look at revenues or employees, and smaller businesses tend to be more likely to underperform or, you know, go bust. Minority-owned businesses not tend to uh, be more informally ran than non-minority businesses. So they often don't have like a formal business plan. They tend to operate as sole proprietorships instead of being incorporated. And, you know, that can track back to differences in education or access to uh, effective advice. And, you know, all these factors that I've talked so far about are not the ones I focus on the article. On the article, I focus on the next factor that I would like to talk about, which is access to money, no access to capital, which sort of connects with all these other factors that I mentioned earlier. And when you look at access to capital, it's sort of difficult no? for any young business, for any startup business to get money. But it seems that it's even more difficult for minority-owned businesses not to tap money. And that's true for debt or equity. So minority-owned businesses are more likely to be denied credit from banks, even after con- controlling for factors that relate to the credit worthiness of the entrepreneur. They tend to receive loans that are smaller or carry higher interest rates, no? so they're not as favorable for the entrepreneur. And sort of this also carries over to equity, no? private equity. Minority-owned businesses are a very, very small part of the portfolio of private equity firms. So it turns out now with all of this, the minority-owned businesses just are financed very differently not from non-minority-owned businesses. And these entrepreneurs, you know, they have this challenge of getting money. They cannot get as much money as they need. And then often they have to resort to informal forms of funding like credit card debt, let's say, which are more expensive no? and can lead to these higher failures. And sort of I focus now, I give mainly because of my background, I put more weight on this part of the equation, access to capital. But I think it all connects, the not having a, as good an education or not having the right social networks, all that interacts to make it more difficult to access capital. Access to capital is, of course, a challenge for any prospective entrepreneur. But as you point out, it's especially challenging for prospective minority entrepreneurs. In the paper, you offer an information asymmetry theory for this disparity. I wondered if you could share with us what that theory teaches and how it might help explain observed disparities. Yeah, so... Basically, I like to focus on informationally driven explanations for these disparities. When you have a young business or a startup company, one of the challenges in raising capital from outside investors is that there's not a lot of information about you, about you, the entrepreneur, or about the business. Often the type of information that is missing that investors like to see is what we call hard information, no? verifiable information 
like financial statements, no? something that an investor can look at, assess, and determine how well the business is doing and how well no? it can do going forward. And young businesses or small young businesses don't have a lot of that information. So when investors are looking to put money into a small young company, they often have to collect and digest soft information. Now, information that is not of sort of hard or verifiable, like figures and plans and history. It's more like the feeling almost that you get from talking to the entrepreneur and listening to the business plans and just having that conversation no, with the entrepreneur. And that's soft information. You know, you sort of know it when you see it, you know when you see a good business and you know when you see a good entrepreneur. And that sort of drives a lot of the financings for small young businesses, uh, which is a challenge. No, it, it makes it more challenging to match companies that, that need capital with investors that have capital. What makes it more challenge for minority businesses is that often it's easier for us to sort of collect and assess and digest soft information when we have some sort of connection, no? either cultural or social, with the business owner. Because it makes it easier no? for us to not just trust the business person, but also sort of understand, have that common language with the entrepreneur. And to the extent that people with money, enough financiers, belong to different groups, be that cultural, social, racial, no, then minority entrepreneurs, it makes it harder no, for those investors to locate, assess, and get comfortable with those minority-owned startups. And I think that's soft, you know, assessing now the, the cost and difficulties of assessing that soft information drives some of the difficulties in raising capital for minority-owned businesses. And sort of what happens now when you don't have access to hard information, verifiable information, and it's difficult for you to assess the soft information that relates to that business, we can then resort to sort of implicit biases, no? So humans being humans, we try to deal with uncertainty and we try to deal with lack of information and we resort to heuristics, no? Easy ways of dealing with the problem. And often we just fill in missing information based on prior beliefs that we may have. And that can be explicit, but it's often implicit, no? And in this sort of context, I think that implicit biases can carry over no? and affect investors' decision-making when they're facing companies that have to be assessed no? via soft information, and there's not that connection no? between the investor and the entrepreneur to make that process, that information-gathering 
process not easy or cost effective. The problem of racial disparity in entrepreneurship is an open problem. What policies or interventions have been put in place or are in place now to reduce those disparities? Are they working? And if not, what have been their shortcomings? So there's been a number now. There's many government-led policies that sort of seek to help minority businesses. So you have the Minority Business Development Agency, and they don't help very much with capital, but they do have business centers now all over the U.S., and they provide support, not advice to minority-owned businesses. Uh, They've been helpful. Now, they, they do play a limited role in financing, but they've been helpful. There's been talk now that we need more of those centers. We need more funding not to have more centers. And also for outreach. Now, one of the problems, not just with this one, but also some of the other measures programs that I'll talk about is that minority-owned businesses, minority owners, they don't know about this programs so they cannot tap into them. But that's one, the MBDA, which seeks to provide advice, but doesn't really address directly the financing problem. Another program that seeks to help minority businesses is a federal contracting. So eligible minority-owned businesses have certain advantages or are supposed to have certain advantages when it comes to contracting with federal agencies. Sort of contracts reserved, more or less, for minority-owned businesses. That's helpful for established businesses. It doesn't get at the heart of, you know, how do you get the ball rolling necessarily. And how effective it's been, it's sort of it's up for debate. There's not enough contracts, it seems, that, that are available for minority-owned businesses or not as much as they should be, not as many. And there's a problem with the award system. Often you have ineligible firms that are actually earning these contracts. No, but that's another piece of the puzzle. Another, and this gets closer now to what I tried to get at, at the paper, is the, the Small Business Administration. The Small Business Administration has a loan guarantee program for small businesses. No? This covers all small businesses, minority and non-minority alike. And this program works by providing guarantees for small business loans. The idea being that banks that would be hesitant to lend to small businesses because of the risk. No, it's very, very risky to lend to young small businesses. They'll be more comfortable doing so because there is this guarantee from the U.S. government via the SBA. And this program has been very successful. Now, generally speaking, it's failed when it comes to minority-owned businesses. So it's it just hasn't worked too much for them. Part of it is outreach. Minority business owners might not know about this program, that it exists. But also, I think you know, that one of the reasons that it's failed is because we're using banks as the channeling method, as the intermediary. And 
banks have also failed on their own to finance minority-owned businesses, in part because banks are not, they're not very good or they're not structured in a way that makes it easy for them to process and digest soft information. So I think that banks in this program have gone for sort of the easy loans, perhaps. The ones that on paper look good and you just don't risk too much. And that probably hasn't helped minority-owned businesses, you know, for which you probably need to delve deeper now and try to uncover some of that soft information. I think another drawback or limitation of the SBA lending program is that it focuses too much on debt. It's only bank debt. And often the best from a young company, no? from an entrepreneur's perspective, sometimes you need that equity financing as well. And that doesn't happen here with this program. Another program, and now this really gets more into like the, my article, Another SBA program is the Small Business Investment Company. And that basically is a program where you have an investment fund, which is managed by some private party. And that investment fund seeks investors to fund the fund to obtain capital, raises capital from investors. And then the government sort of matches some of that capital. So you go out, you raise money from private investors, then the government gives you some additional capital, usually in the form of a loan, a soft loan, and then that fund goes out and invests in small businesses. And it can invest in any way it wants, using any instruments. And these SBICs, the small business investment companies, they look a little bit like venture capital funds, no? And in fact, this the VC industry sort of started or, or grew a lot based on one of the predecessors of the SBIC program. And the need signal or the advantage of the SBIC program is that now you have this private manager that has the experience, the ability, perhaps the incentives to sort of digest and look for soft information more than a bank itself would would probably be able to. So SBICs have been quite important no? for developing a, a small businesses or helping fund small businesses, but they have also sadly sort of failed when it comes to providing financing minority-owned businesses. So for example, if I recall, Black and Hispanic businesses receive less than uh, 1% of the dispersed funds when it comes to SBIC programs, which is quite low. And I think the failure is doing fact, again, because of outreach, but some scholars have argued that the composition of SBIC fund managers have a role to play here in the sense that they tend to be non-minority, they tend to be Caucasian, no? let's say, and they are unable no? to or don't feel as comfortable researching and getting to know and investing in these minority-owned businesses. 
another drawback of the SBSC program is that it's very much focused on that. It really doesn't have to be, but since the government provides the sort of the backup, no, since the government provides funding via that, it puts some pressure on the SBIC to play it safe. No? So they tend to go for medium-sized companies and they tend to heavily invest in that just to keep it safe. And that doesn't help young, risky businesses. Some of the minority-owned businesses are. There's been some programs, and I want to sort of piggyback on this later on, some past programs, SPIC programs that have been discontinued now, mainly for funding reasons that address some of these issues, some of these limitations. So once we had the Participating Securities Program, which gave more leeway to the SBIC in terms of the government, instead of just giving a loan to the SBIC, it was taking more of a participating interest. So it was not a fixed obligation from the SBIC's perspective. And another program that's also been discontinued was the specialized SBIC, which were targeted not at minority-owned businesses. Those are the main programs I looked at in the article. There's many others. Now, so I know that there is tax-based programs that seek to help minority-owned businesses and you know areas where minorities live and work, like opportunity zones and community development entities. But those programs, which also piggyback a little bit now in my article, those programs have, for some reason, focused mainly on real estate development and commercial project development. So even though it helps develop areas where many minorities live, it doesn't necessarily help minority-owned businesses. I'd like to turn a little bit to the prescriptive part of your paper. What do you propose as an intervention to address the disparities that we see in minority entrepreneurship and perhaps to succeed where some of the other policies you've discussed have fallen short? Are there any barriers you see to your proposal being implemented? I think that the goal behind my proposal is to get private equity into the mix, not try to recruit private equity to work on the problem. So for a couple of reasons. One is that sometimes equity instruments or hybrid instruments are more appropriate when it comes to small young businesses to have that ability to use different types of instruments, but also because private equity or a big part of it, it's all about soft information. Now, these funds, often they go into small businesses, young businesses that are just mere ideas. And, you know, they talk to the entrepreneur, they see the people working with the entrepreneur, and they can get a sense about this business. Oh, this business is going to work, or this business is a dot, and so on. So they have that ability, you know, they're sort of structured in a way that facilitates that process of gathering and assessing soft information. I think it would be good to recruit those people. And to do so, we could, instead of like reinventing 
the real none coming up with fancy, flashy proposals, we can look at what we have already in place no, and try to redeploy that. And I think that the SPIC already provides no, a great workhorse, a great benchmark no, to work with. And what I propose in the paper, it's pretty much a mix or like a hybrid of two former SPIC programs, the participating securities program and the specialized SPIC program. And the goal would be for the government to provide some sort of subsidy, we can look at that later on, to funds, SPIC, like an SPIC fund, that's going to specialize in investing in minority-owned businesses. That sort of subsidy, quote-unquote, from the government can be participating interest, look like to an equity investment in the SPIC fund to give more leeway to the fund, not to put less pressure on the fund, which is what happens now with the SPIC. Another way to provide a subsidy to those funds to sort of incentivize, not because we have to incentivize private equity to get into the game, can be via some tax incentives similar to the opportunity zones. Now, we have some tax-based incentives already in place, so we could redeploy those to try to attract private equity into the mix. The whole thing, now that if you set this system in place with help now from the government, it can be eventually become self-sustaining. Because it turns out that there are some investment funds, now some mutual funds, private equity funds that focus on minority-owned businesses and they do well. So if you can find the right investments and you can make money from investing in these businesses, this is far from being charity, no? So I think that once you set up that process going, then the ball can roll. No, it could be that many of these funds hire more or give more authority, power, no discretion to minority managers who might have an easier time assessing minority-owned businesses, this can become self-sustaining. The goal is never to have the government involved forever. It's just to do something that if you get the ball rolling, it could develop. I also, in the paper, I had a few tweaks now that can make it more interesting. So, I had a tweet that we could bring crowdfunding in the mix and having sort of crowdfunding type investments as well so that these special SBICs, which I call LISPICs now in the article, can also raise money from individual investors. And that's just to make it more of a community. Now you have all these people who want to help minority-owned businesses, and it sort of helps keep the social aspects. Even it's about making money, because, you know, these are solid investments, potentially. There's also a social aspect of this. Now, we're all in this together. We all want to make it work and improve the environment for minority-owned businesses. So there's a lot of room for creativity here. The challenge, of course, is it's easy not to propose programs I think it's more difficult to fund them and find funding, and that's always a challenge for any program. 
I think that at least when it comes to this issue, and I'm not talking just about my proposal, but generally, I think we're in a period of time where people have recognized the problem and are more open to talking about the problem. And we've also become more mindful of what can be driving the problem. So I think now this idea of implicit biases, for example, which I believe are driving a lot of these disparities, people are coming to term with that. No? And I think that once you identify that as the source of the problem, then it's easier to direct the state institutions to address that particular problem with narrow solutions that seek to address that particular issue. So I think that there's more political will now than there was, you know, 10, 20 years ago. So maybe the funding aspect may not pose such a big problem. And so it's convincing, not private equity. And that's always a challenge because you cannot force people. Not, this is not something that you can force on individuals. But I think that private equity now also has accepted. Many folks in the industry have accepted that there is a problem, that they should be funding more minority-owned businesses and that they should have more minorities in their ranks. So I think that we're at a juncture in time where all the forces can probably get together and agree to solve this problem. What key takeaways would you like our listeners to have from this conversation and from the paper? I think that from the article and from this conversation, my main takeaways, one deals with the source of the problem. So whenever we see some disparities, racial disparities, some people often jump to think, oh, there's some sort of either racial animosity, racism, taste-based discrimination driving this. And that's probably part of the story. I'm not going to say it is not. But I think it's more helpful to dig a little bit deeper. And especially when it comes to investments in businesses. And uh, we focus on informational-driven stories and implicit biases. I think it makes it easier not just to discuss the problem, but to find solutions. You cannot solve a taste-based discrimination very quickly, but you can address informational symmetries much more easier. And I think once we have that theory, now that informationally based theory that explains these disparities, then it's easier to address. And I think that's, for me, that's the big takeaway of the paper and then the program to try to solve it. I tend to believe that, you know, we have to delve in reality now and propose programs that either would be easy to put in place or that are similar to ones that have been in place. And I think there's enough out there in our policy toolbox to try to address this problem by trying to bring uh, you know, people in the private industry, in the private equity industry, to recruit them as part of the solution. Our guest today has been Carlos Berdejo, professor of law at Loyola Law School. We've discussed his article, Financing Minority Entrepreneurship, which is forthcoming in the Wisconsin Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Carlos, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Oh, thank you, Andrew. It was fun. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.